Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art, I'm Ben Luke. This week, the financial woes afflicting US museums. The committee, formed to appoint Documenta's artistic director, resigns en masse after anti-Semitism allegations and a work by the Singaporean British artist, Kim Lim. I talked to the art newspaper's editor in the Americas, Ben Sutton, about the redundancies and ticket price hikes at several museums across the US and what it tells us about the economic climate for museums in the wake of the pandemic. After a troubled 15th edition in 2022, Documenta, the influential exhibition that takes place twice a decade in Kassel in Germany, is at the centre of another controversy after the resignation of the entire committee intended to appoint its artistic director due to allegations of anti-Semitism against one of the panel. Our correspondent in Germany, Catherine Hickley tells us more about this and the wider crisis in the German art world relating to the war in Israel and Gaza. And this episode's work of the week is Ronin, a sculpture by the Singaporean British artist Kim Lim. The work's part of the first survey of Lim's work at a British gallery since 1999 at the Hepworth in Wakefield. Marie-Charlotte Carrier, the curator of the show, tells us more about Lim's life and art. There's a Black Friday subscription offer at theartnewspaper.com, 70% off an annual digital subscription until the end of Monday, the 27th of November. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, a new series of which began this week with a conversation with Shooter Babizwas. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, is there a crisis in US museums? In the past two months, news has emerged of layoffs at two major institutions, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, or SFMOMA, and Dallas Museum of Art, while a number of major organisations, including the Metropolitan Museum and Museum of Modern Art in New York, have increased their ticket prices. Ben Sutton is our editor in the Americas, and I asked him about what these developments tell us about the financial landscape for museums in the US. Ben, there's been a steady trickle of news stories about mini crises in US museums. Can we start with layoffs? Two museums, SF MoMA and the Dallas Museum of Art, have announced layoffs. Tell us more about those. Sure. So in mid-November last week, SF MoMA announced that it was eliminating 20 staff positions. So that's, I believe, seven layoffs and 13 open roles that they are not backfilling. And in the announcement, they cited pretty astonishing 35% drop in attendance compared to 2019, which, you know, four years on, the notion that that is persisting is is definitely notable, and we'll, we'll get into that. And these staff cuts come on the back of a pretty drastic cutback of programming that the museum announced two years ago. So all in all, it amounts to quite a lot of cutbacks. And then at the Dallas Museum of Art in late October... Museum leadership announced that they were also laying off 20 people, which comes out to a reduction of about 8% of their workforce. So yeah, 20 layoffs and then reducing two full-time jobs to part-time jobs. They also cut back on their evening hours one day and and announced that they were going to close on Tuesdays when they had previously been open. And they similarly cited slow return to pre-pandemic level attendance, as well as things like rising costs of operation and the sort of falling away of a number of government support mechanisms that had been in place because of the pandemic. So pretty similar, on the face of it at least, situations at both museums. And pretty startling, I think, also just given how regionally and nationally significant both institutions are to see them having to make such intense cutbacks. 
let's drill down into some of those reasons. First, let's talk about the attendance levels not returning to pre-pandemic levels. Obviously, in the US, funding mechanisms are different from institution to institution to a certain extent, but more so than European museums, certainly US museums do really rely on income from attendance, don't they? Tell us more. Yeah, attendance is definitely a big slice of the pie, just because there is so little state funding for the arts. At the federal, state and municipal levels, there's just not an enormous amount of funding for the arts. So museums are more reliant on things like admissions, as well as retail sales and restaurants and events, rentals and things like that. So the fact that attendance is not returned to pre-pandemic levels really represents a significant hit to these institutions' revenue sources. And there's only so much that private philanthropy can make up the difference. Absolutely. And when you think about it, actually, the 35% drop in numbers from 2019 at SF MoMA, once you start just thinking about how, you know, it was $25 entry, it's now just been put up to 30. But if you think about how many multiplications of that $25 has gone, it does make you realise how much of a hole there's going to be in the finances, right? Yeah, absolutely. And even just sort of picturing a visit to the institution and then imagining that, you know, more than a third of the people who would have been there are no longer there, it really sort of puts it into perspective. And let's talk about the reasons for that. To what extent is SF MoMA one of those organisations that relies upon tourism? To what extent is it very much a community museum? Is it a balance of both? Because again, that's very different from museum to museum in the States, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I should say that I don't have the exact numbers on this, but my sense from visiting SF MoMA many times over the years and having family in the Bay Area is that it is very much a sort of tourism-driven market there. And I don't know to what extent that that is similar at the Dallas Museum of Art. I would imagine it is not the same. But at SF MoMA, certainly, I mean, it is relying to a large extent on tourism to the city, which has definitely not rebounded. I mean, there are many parallels between these two institutions, but the cities in which they exist have had kind of diametrically opposed experiences since the pandemic. And so I think that sort of dynamic is really interesting to think about. You know, SF MoMA is in a city that has sort of hobbled out of the pandemic, whereas the Dallas Museum of Art is in a city that has really thrived since 2019. And how that factors into these decisions, obviously, we we don't know exactly, but I think it's interesting to consider against that backdrop. Absolutely. And and that's one of the things in the statement from Christopher Bedford, the recently appointed director at SF MoMA. Yeah. He very much talks about the local situation in San Francisco, doesn't he? So, so tell us a bit about that local situation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, San Francisco has become effectively kind of the poster child of the worst effects of the pandemic on an urban center. You know, there was obviously a huge exodus in the early days of COVID. Lots of folks who worked for tech companies who might have already been working partly remotely just going fully remote, moving out to the suburbs or to other states. And very little of that dynamism has come back. Um, I was looking at the numbers and San Francisco lost about 7.5% of its population from 2020 to 2022. So that's a drop of like 65,000 people in a relatively small city. Mm -hmm. So that's significant. And, you know, there are startling statistics that I can't pull out right now about the sort of vacancy rate of commercial real estate in downtown San Francisco. You know, there are all these factors that make the area surrounding SF MoMA just significantly less vibrant than it was four years ago. And I'm sure, as Christopher Bedford alluded to in his statement, you know, that is having a pretty direct impact on foot traffic and sales and how much people are spending and how many people are coming. You know, all these things have a ripple effect for an institution that is so centrally located like SF MoMA. 
Right, yeah. And then, as you say, if Dallas is booming, then that doesn't compute in terms of that argument to a certain degree, does it? So in, in other words, museums aren't a slam dunk in terms of like people are happy, you know, business is booming, loads of people are downtown and are just ready to enter into a museum. There's something that's happened between the pandemic and now in terms of people visiting museums. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the, the Dallas Museum of Art, it's less easy to draw a kind of parallel between the city's changes over the last four years and what's happening at the museum. That one's a bit more of a head-scratcher, but yeah, I mean, if there is one city that has benefited from the pandemic in the U.S., it is Dallas. It had the biggest influx of residents during the pandemic. I was looking at the numbers recently, and it's something like 170,000 people moved to Dallas between 2021 and 2022. You know, it's, it's sort of like the the epitome of this kind of dynamic of people leaving the north and the coasts and moving to the, to the so-called Sun Belt. And it's interesting to see that that is not, at least thus far, seemingly benefited the museum. Yeah, that really is interesting. I think one of the things that most alarms me about the statements from both of these museums is about the exhaustion of the pandemic relief funds contributing to the layoffs. Because it seems to me that this is probably happening in museums right across the states right now. These are the two that have come out, made the gestures they have and talked about this issue. But it must therefore indicate a much wider problem, would you agree? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it would take someone with a lot of time and eye for detail to go through a lot of tax forms to put together how many museums have actually been quietly doing things like this and just not making a show of it or not being spotted by journalists doing so. But I would guess that there are measures, maybe not quite as drastic, but similar measures being made you know, across institutions around the country. Because, yeah, the disappearance of various pandemic-era protections, whether that was payroll loan programs or emergency grants that various organizations and, and government bodies offered, you know, the disappearance of all that hasn't happened in the last six months. It's happened over a period of time. And I think museums and commercial art spaces as well have managed to offset making these difficult decisions for a while. But I think at some point those decisions have to be made. And I think my sense, I don't want to sound alarmist, is that we will be seeing more of this as these kind of hard decisions that were just about able to be offset for two, three years are now just unavoidable. And, and of course, that's reflected in the fact that we've seen ticket price increases at lots of other museums and particularly some of the real big museums, the kind of iconic museums of New York, effectively. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess we should have seen this coming in hindsight after all those announcements. But yeah, I mean, basically four of the biggest museums in New York over the course of a little over a year all announced that they were raising their admission from 25 to $30. Met was first out of the gate in June of 2022. And then this year, it was in pretty rapid succession, the Whitney, the Guggenheim and MoMA all announcing raising admission prices to $30, which maybe there's another way of explaining it. But to my sense, it can only be attributed to a slow return of attendance and needing to make more out of the ticket sales that they're making. Over the years, we talked a lot on this podcast about philanthropic board members mm-hmm. at museums. One of the questions, I guess, is, is there a history of philanthropists on boards helping museums out with operational costs at times like this? And indeed, would you envision that museums would be saying to their board members, look, can you help us out through this difficult period? Or are basically board members now only interested in buying showy artworks and funding big extensions? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a that's a tricky question. You, you know, there certainly are examples of philanthropists, you know, coming through in a really, really big way to support an institution in a time of difficulty. The really glaring recent-ish example is, is Eli Brode bailing out the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles about 15 years ago, uh, or maybe slightly less. And I guess an interesting parallel to this is, you know, there are quite a few U.S. museums that have made a show of getting support from philanthropists specifically to do away with admission. So you like the Cleveland Museum of Art, for instance, is a great example of this, that in the midst of making a major overhaul of their campus and an expansion, also essentially getting support to do away with admission, saying, you know, we have this lump sum from this person, and that is enough to cover whatever we might have made from admissions over the course of X number of years. Maybe that's something that museums are, are going to start pursuing again now that admission is becoming such a a challenging thing to to predict or anticipate. Yeah, it's, it's a curious one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got these arguments that people make that museums that are able to call on a large number of tourists for their audience are relatively relaxed about price hikes because tourists, if they've made a big journey over to a major city in another country, are not going to worry about an extra $5. (laughs) But of course, if you have museums that have bigger local communities as part of that audience, then that might really start to bite and it might actually end up completely corrupting what the museum's there for in the first place, one senses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that might be another place where the distinction between Dallas and SFMOMA factors in. You know, I am fairly certain that SFMOMA has had historically like much higher attendance than Dallas. And I think they, to some extent, are speaking to slightly different audiences. You know, San Francisco is very much a sort of tourist destination in a way that Dallas, no offense to our Texan listeners, is not quite yet. And I imagine that a price hike for the Dallas Museum of Art would be a lot harder to sell to an audience that probably skews more local than charging the French tourists who've flown 12 hours to get to San Francisco another $5 to get into SFMOMA. I just wanted to go back to your point about what philanthropists are willing to shell out money for. And I think that there's another interesting contrast here between SFMOMA and the Dallas Museum of Art, which is that the Dallas Museum of Art is in the sort of early planning stages of a major, major expansion the sort of biggest one since their opening 80-something years ago. And that, I think, to me is really interesting. You know, SF MoMA completed a few years ago its own major expansion designed by Snohetta, this $305 million 10-story expansion. And Dallas is going down that road now. They just picked an architect for a, an expansion that is going to be something to the tune of $150 to $175 million. And so clearly they are confident that they can raise the money for that, and yet they don't feel confident that they can pay 20 more people, so they've let them go. That contrast, I think, speaks a lot to the tenor of arts support among U.S. philanthropists, is that there's a lot of appetite for something big, showy, and flashy that you can slap your name on, but just the sort of mundane, but some would say maybe more valuable, work of actually supporting people's living wages <laughs> is seemingly harder to sell to a donor. And that speaks to some sort of chronic problems with the US museum funding model. That really is interesting. And of course, one of the things that we, again, we've covered a lot on this podcast is unionization, workers' rights in museums. Yeah. Is there any sense in which the additional costs that some of the museums have been bearing as a result of those contracts being signed and agreed and over after much negotiation are being seen as one of the contributing factors you know it's, it's one of the things that you see businesses do a lot they blame yeah. their workforce quite quite quickly <laughs> are we seeing museums doing anything of the sort 
I think museum leaders have very wisely tread a very delicate line on this. And in the early stages of union organizing at museums, one of the ways that museums have tried to dissuade their workers and kind of sway public opinion against unions in the kind of early stages of those negotiations has been to say essentially what you just said, yeah, that if the union gets everything they want, then we're going to have to pay out this much more and those costs are going to be then paid on to visitors, whether that's in terms of raising the cost of admission or cutting back on programs or what have you. So I think in the kind of initial public PR stage of a unionization fight, that argument is often made. Once a union is established, the museum tends to quite tactfully stop making that argument (laughs) so as to not alienate too many of its own workers and the general public. But undoubtedly, I imagine that that is a factor and SFMOMA is one of those places that has formed a union. You've noticed, though, that it doesn't just stop at museums, this crisis among arts institutions, because is it right that there are galleries in New York that are closing? Yeah, there have been quite a few sort of mid-sized galleries closing in New York. Places like JTT and Denny Gallery and several others over the last sort of six months. And I think my sense is that, you know, obviously those are much smaller scale operations. We're talking, you know, two to ten to maybe 20 staff as opposed to... right you know, massive institutions with hundreds of employees. But my sense is there's a similar dynamic at play, which is that small operations that could just about scrape by and in some cases even expand. I mean, the dynamics of New York real estate are such that quite a few places took advantage of cheaper commercial real estate during the pandemic years. But my sense is that a lot of those galleries that have closed recently we're sort of experiencing a kind of micro version of what these museums are dealing with, which is, you know, all these decisions and difficulties that they could just about put off for two or three years are now proving unsustainable. And they're having to make these really difficult cuts that they didn't have to make because of pandemic support programs two years ago. All of which begs the question about the US economy more generally. And ahead of talking to you, I was reading a piece on the Vox website in which it says that there's this conundrum, which is that labour market is good, as is much of the economy, and people say that everything is terrible. (laughs) And um, I'm reading this kind of thing a lot Mm -hmm. about the US economy. There's a lot of uncertainty, in other words. Yeah, there's a kind of split-screen phenomenon of, on the one hand, you read the financial numbers and the economists, and everybody says, you know, the economy is in this great place right now. The unemployment rate is at historic lows, People's wages have gone up dramatically over the past four years. The flip side of that, obviously, is that there was pretty drastic inflation last year, which is now finally slowing down. But I think you're right that there's a sort of disconnect between the big picture numbers and how people feel on the ground. And I think a lot of that has to do with, A, just sort of political polarization. And, you know, we're about to enter what is going to be a really exhausting election year here. And I think that there's a lot of, from both parties, there's a lot of power in making people feel vulnerable and proffering your solutions to them. And I think one party, maybe more than another, is relying on that strategy. But there is definitely a a sort of dynamic of, well, like, you know, this is something that will get people riled up and ready to vote. So I think that's one factor. But I think there is also a very real sense among Americans that their sort of purchasing power is evaporating, you know, that for all things being better ostensibly on paper, the kind of day-to-day reality is that they feel much more on the edge of an economic precipice. And I think that feeling 
no amount of economic statistics and figures is make that come unglued, which maybe explains this sort of like disconnect between the numbers and the sentiment. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. You can read more on this story on the website or our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, another documenta crisis and Kim Lim at the Hepworth Wakefield. That's after this week's news bulletin. Human Rights Watch has alleged that China is closing, destroying and repurposing mosques in a report published this week. The report is further evidence of what Human Rights Watch calls a systematic effort in China to restrict the practice of Islam. It follows mounting evidence of human rights abuses against Uyghur Muslims in China's northwestern Xinjiang region, which an independent tribunal and the US government have termed a genocide. There are approximately 20 million Muslim people in China. A scholar on Chinese Muslims, Hannah Thika, told the BBC that around 1,300 100 mosques in Ningxia, representing a third of the Muslim places of worship in that region, have been closed or converted since 2020. Beijing has denied the accusations of genocide and has not yet commented on the report. Marriott Vesterman has been appointed as director and chief executive of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum and Foundation by the institution's board of trustees. She's the first woman to hold the position and succeeds Richard Armstrong, who announced his departure in summer 2022. Vesterman will oversee the institution's flagship location in New York, alongside the Peggy Guggenheim Collection and Foundation in Venice, while providing collaborative leadership to the directors of the Guggenheim Museum Bilbao and the forthcoming outpost in Abu Dhabi, which was initially due to open in 2012. Vesterman, who's been the Vice-Chancellor of New York University's Abu Dhabi campus since 2019 and served as its founding provost from 2007 to 2010, will bring art historical expertise and a track record of philanthropic work in the humanities to her new role. She holds a PhD and master's degree from NYU's Institute of the Arts and she's published books on Dutch art and society, including monographs on Rembrandt and Vermeer. A UK museum says that it will be heeding research that reveals the ancient Roman emperor, Elagabalus, was transgender and will subsequently be referring to the ruler as she in its displays. The North Hertfordshire Museum will use a new set of pronouns to refer to Elagabalus based on classical texts where the emperor asked to be called lady. The decision follows long-standing academic interest in Elagabalus's gender identity. Keith Hoskins, executive member for Enterprise and Arts at North Hearts Council, said that the emperor identified as a woman and was explicit about which pronouns to use. To read these stories and much more, visit the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Discover over a century of art and design in New York this holiday season. Led by the illuminated library table by Charlotte Perriand and Jean Prouvé, designed for La Maison de l'Étudiant in Paris, the design auction presents over 140 lots spanning from 1900 to today, from early examples of American craft to magnificent French art deco. The Tiffany sale celebrates the man and firm that inspired the artistry of glassmaking in America, with a focus on early window commissions, featuring the grapevine and trellis art. Window. View the works at Christie's Rockefeller Center Galleries in New York beginning the 1st of December and explore the sales at Christie's.com. 
Welcome back. Now, Documenta, the major exhibition of contemporary art that takes place twice a decade in Kassel in Germany, which was beset by an anti-Semitism and censorship controversy in its most recent edition last year, has been plunged into a new crisis following the resignation of the committee set up to appoint the exhibition's next artistic director. The row again relates to accusations of anti-Semitism in the wake of events in Israel and Gaza. Catherine Hickley is our correspondent in Germany, and I spoke to her about Documenta's latest crisis. Catherine, obviously the present situation relates to the events in Israel and Gaza, but I think it's important to go back to 2022 to establish the context for this debate, because the the fact is that Documentary in 2022 was a hugely controversial event and it related to anti-Semitism. So if you wouldn't mind just briefly telling us what happened back then. Yes, and I agree with you completely that 2022 Documentary is really central in all of this. So even before the documenta opened, there were accusations of anti-Semitism against Ruan Gruppe, the curators of the exhibition. And then when it opened, an anti-Semitic image was discovered in a very large sort of agitprop mural. And there were two figures in it which were clearly anti-Semitic. So that work had to be taken down. The exhibition carried on, but... It was dogged by problems, plagued with issues the whole way through. There were other works that were discovered to have anti-Semitic elements in them. It ended up with one of the members of Ruin Grupa having to go to the parliament to explain how on earth all of this could have happened. The general director of Documenta had to resign and everyone has said this cannot happen again. This cannot be allowed to happen again. So it's already a very fraught situation And crucially, the German government and the kind of cultural leadership community was intent on making changes, weren't they, at that time, which would mean that it wouldn't happen again, right? That's right. There was a declaration saying that we have to reorganise Documenta. There has to be institutional changes that make sure that this doesn't happen again, that prevent such an issue turning up again. Right. Another thing that I think is important to establish in terms of context is the German parliament's attitude to the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Because is it right in German law, certainly in the German parliament, it was described as an anti-Semitic organisation? That's right. It's not banned. And in fact, there have been a number of court cases upholding BDS's right to organise events and so on in Germany. But the German parliament issued a declaration describing BDS as anti-Semitic. And that has had a lot of repercussions in the art world, even before the war broke out. So there have been plenty of cases of artists who have been discovered to have sympathy with BDS, having their events cancelled, having concerts cancelled and so on. So this was all going on even before the war broke out. And of course, the situation has become much more intense since then. Okay, so let's move on to the current situation with the Documenta Finding Committee then. Is it right that there were accusations against Ranjit Hoskate in the German press that sort of have precipitated these, these events? Well, the Süddeutsche Zeitung uncovered the statement that he had signed in 2019. It was a BDS statement. It was 
targeting Zionism and Hindu nationalism. So that was where this all came up from. The question was also asked, how come we didn't know about this before? Because the finding panel should have been vetted by the organisers. And it was in as far as they were asked to declare that they had no affinity to BDS before they were taken on. But it was related to a very specific event, wasn't it, where a Zionist speaker and a Hindu nationalist speaker were going to be speaking at an event and several academics and intellectuals signed this statement that, that was also signed by Ranjit Hoskote. Exactly. It was an event at the Israeli consul in Mumbai. And for Ranjit Hoskote has said that for him, you know, he was targeting more the Hindu nationalism and not the Zionism. He said that he opposes BDS and sanctions against Israel and that his signature was much more targeted at the Hindu nationalist element of, of this event. Right. But the first resignation wasn't actually Ranjit Hoskote, was it? It was Bracha Lichtenberg Ettinger. Who is she and why did she resign? She's an Israeli philosopher who resigned because of the war breaking out, because of the Hamas attack on Israel and then Israel's response and the suffering and horror that she was dealing with in her backyard when she was in Israel. And um, she said that in this context, it was impossible for her to attend the next meeting of the finding committee. And she asked for a postponement. It was practically difficult for her to get there, as well as emotionally very difficult to focus on anything else at that time. However, the documented organiser said, we can't postpone it for organisational reasons. And then she wrote a letter saying that she would be resigning from the committee as a result. Did they ever explain what those organisational reasons were? Because it seems to me that it would have been an entirely reasonable response to postpone it, even if it was for a short period. I sort of can't get my head around why the organisational people at Documenta just thought, well, actually, that's a good idea. Why don't we have a pause? I don't know what the exact organisational reasons were. I don't think that has been explained. Obviously, the panel was supposed to be coming up with the new artistic directors before the end of the year or in early 2024. So the schedule is quite tight. And she said that she found the reasons understandable, but it just made it impossible for her to continue. Right. OK. So then the resignation of Hoskote, and he, of course, wrote a statement and, and it was quite strongly worded, wasn't it? What did he say? His statement was very, very strongly worded. He said that he felt that he'd been judged in a kangaroo court, that he felt that Germany was equating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism and sympathy for Palestinians, therefore, with uh, sympathy for Hamas. He found the accusations of anti-Semitism against him absolutely monstrous. And he said that he felt that Germany was basically taking the wrong tack on this and, you know, not listening to different approaches, different perspectives. I mean, he said as well that he has Jewish heritage, that family members of his are Jewish, that for him the Shoah is something personal, that he has a deep respect for Israeli culture and the Israeli people. So it was, you know, a very, very passionately worded, angry response, but also quite measured and very carefully argued Claudia Roth had said that the statement that he signed was explicitly anti-Semitic, hadn't she? I mean, that was, again, that was quite a strongly worded statement from her, wasn't it? So explain what she said about it. 
She said that it was anti-Semitic and that it also included typically anti-Semitic stereotypes and conspiracy theories. I mean, I've looked at that statement very, very closely myself, and it does refer to Israel as an apartheid state, which is obviously not how Israel views itself. And it is extremely critical of Zionism and, and compares Zionist ideology with Hindu nationalism. It also talks about how on the ground Israel has had a policy of ethnic cleansing against Palestinians, which again, Israel would certainly dispute. So I think it would be fair to say some would view it as anti-Semitic, others would view it as more anti-Israel. I don't know quite where I stand on that. Yeah, it's curious because, of course, you know, following both sides of this argument, you can see the sensitivities on both sides in the sense you can see the free speech sensitivities on one side, but also you can see that there are certain words that are used that we know are deeply problematic for the Israeli community, certainly, and for many members of the Jewish community. Yes, exactly. There are triggers, you know, in that statement, of course. It talks about settler colonialism and so on. But a lot of that, people could also argue, well, that is a criticism of Israeli policies. It's it's a very difficult, fine line. I and mean, one thing we can say for sure is that this whole area is a complete minefield and it is drawing a lot of people into that minefield. Absolutely. But it should also be said that in their resignation letter, they do acknowledge that, as I think they put it, there's a great sensitivity towards all anti-Semitic tendencies in Germany and that there is a special context in Germany for dealing with anti-Semitism because of the events of the 20th century. Well, that's absolutely right. Germany definitely sees itself as having a special responsibility towards the state of Israel and towards Israel's right to exist. And let's not forget, there are plenty of people who are challenging that in Germany as well. It's a very fraught debate in Germany, but also in the UK, in France, in the US. So this is a kind of an incredibly difficult situation. Germany feels that it has to be as responsible as it can in defending Jews and Judaism for very understandable reasons. And it seems that with this whole new institutional reorganisation and so on at Documenta, the federal government definitely wants to take more control of what happens, which on the one hand is extremely understandable that they want this new organisation. They want to make sure that nothing like what happened in 2022 happens again. On the other hand, you know, is that good for Documenta? Is that good for its kind of reputation and its legacy as you know, a very political show that deals with all of the issues of our times that's incredibly topical and has had this extraordinary track record in identifying trends in art and thinking internationally. Absolutely. And you can see that a critic of the German government would say that what they're asking for is state interference in an exhibition, in in this landmark exhibition that has produced such alternative thinking over many decades. It hasn't been established exactly what the federal government will do. And let's not forget, the federal government has been funding Documenta for many, many years. So it already has an involvement to a certain extent. And Documenta is such a flagship arts event for Germany that it's, again, perhaps not surprising that the German government would want to have some involvement in that. You know, knowing how the German government generally does these things, it doesn't interfere. It will take a distance. It will just find the right people to do the job. And it seems that at this point, they no longer have confidence in the current organisers to do that. 
But given that in this resignation letter, these curators had said that it was impossible to conceive of a strong and signal exhibition project, it begs the question of who is going to take on this role now? I mean, it's, it would be very difficult for any curator, museum director or so on, to step into the shoes of these people who have taken such a position, because of course, then their position becomes the subject of a very particular focus itself, doesn't it? That's true. That's another thing that we have to navigate at this point that has to be negotiated. It's more than a minefield. (laughs) It's really such a difficult situation. Indeed it is. And indeed, overnight, you have written a story for the art newspaper about another instance in which another organisation, the Biennial for Contemporary Photography, has been cancelled. Tell us more about that. Yes, this was one of the curators who posted on Facebook. It was much more unequivocal than the statement that Ranjit Hoskote signed. Clear support for Palestinian cause, but also comparing Israeli reprisals against Hamas to the Holocaust and images that were anti-Semitic. So it is in a slightly different category, I would say. So the curator... Shahidul Alam is a Bangladeshi photojournalist. He has obviously been asked to leave the curating team. The other two curators said they didn't want to go ahead with the biennial if he wasn't going to be involved. So that means that the biennial is completely cancelled. It was to be happening in March next year. And the organiser say that actually threatens the future of the entire biennial. So they're now in huge problems. They also already had problems with sponsorship from BASF, which said earlier this year that it was withdrawing its sponsorship after the 2024 edition, which is now not going to happen. Right. It does beg the question because we know, for instance, that an artist has posted on Instagram saying that that a show that they were making for the Museum Folkwang in Essen has been cancelled about nervousness among artistic communities in terms of expressing support for Palestine or expressing support even for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. It means that the situation in Germany must be extraordinarily tense in the art world. Yes, I think the situation is tense. We mustn't forget that that was also the case before. There had also been conflicts before. Obviously, it's all exacerbated by the outbreak of the war and the attack on October the 7th. There is a lot of discussion in Germany, as I'm sure there are in many other countries at the moment, about what is anti-Semitic, what is not anti-Semitic, what is criticism of Israel, what is actually racist criticism. So there are a whole load of issues being discussed at all levels of society. And I think the real problem is where does the art world come in there? There are things that you really don't want to have politicians saying or people at universities or in positions of authority and representatives of the establishment. But should there be slightly different rules for artists and curators? Shouldn't freedom of expression be more important in art than it is elsewhere? And I think that's a very difficult debate and I don't think we've come to the end of it yet. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for telling us about this story. Thank you for having me on. You can read more about this story on the website or the app. To hear more about Documenta in 2022, listen to our episode from 24th of June last year and our review of the year on the 16th of December 2022.
And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Kim Lim was a prominent sculptor in Britain, her native Singapore and more widely, before her death in 1997. But since then, she's not received the same level of attention. And the new exhibition at the Hepworth Wakefield is the first major survey of her work in sculpture and printmaking since 1999. Among the highlights of the show is Ronin, a work from 1963. And I spoke to the curator of the show, Marie-Charlotte Carrier, about the work. You can see an image of it on our Instagram and the web story for this episode. Marie-Charlotte, where was Kim Lim in terms of her career when she made this work? So Kim Lim made this artwork in 1963 when she was only 27 years old. I think it must have been an incredibly productive time for her. She had her first son in 62 and one of her other works on wood, Samurai, that she made in 62, was acquired by the Arts Council collection just a year before. So it was incidentally her first work acquired by a public collection in a museum. And in 62, she traveled to Japan and extensively across Asia. And it seems to have been an incredibly fruitful experience for her. And it became so important in her career, all of the travels that she made around that time with her husband, the Scottish sculptor, William Turnbull. Right. Yeah. And she was born in Singapore, of course, but she'd studied in the UK. And this relationship between Europe and Asia seems to be absolutely crucial in understanding her work, would you say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, she was someone that was really well travelled in general. I mean, there's a story that she would go back to see her parents in Singapore when she was a student and she would have this sort of ticket, which unfortunately probably doesn't exist anymore, where you could hop over any destination in Europe. So she travelled through Greece, Turkey, and she took photographs of all of her travels and they became kind of studies for her pieces. So that goes actually kind of beyond Asia. And I think for her, it was also very important not to be solemnly defined by her origins. So she was truly influenced by art history in general and by the, the legacy of her culture too. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the work Samurai, and of course, this work is called Ronin. They both refer to Japanese culture. Yes. What was she intending to do in terms of this? Because it's within a wider network of references to things like gods and mythical figures and so on, isn't it? So it's not isolated to Japan, this. It's part of a wider study. But effectively, the works are somewhat abstract as well. So there's a curious balance between the figuration and the abstraction in this work, right? Yes, absolutely. So the work is quite modest in size. It's about 70 by 30 centimetres. And I think like most of Kim Lim's work, the size of the sculpture is quite contained. And yet it has this kind of powerful resonance that radiates like way beyond its scale. It's composed of three different pieces of dark wood that are balanced on top of one another, a stable log at the base, the central section that holds this crescent moon that's kind of deliberately asymmetrical. And so shapes like that, like these lugs, these arches, these half moons, these curves that you see in Ronin and, and many other of her works, they bear kind of a clear resemblance to the carved kind of roof of temples that she would have visited in Japan, especially the Kiyomizu Dera temple in Kyoto. So in some of the photos that we're displaying in the exhibitions, you have photos that she taken herself of the temple displayed alongside Ronin. And you can really see how she examined the spatial dynamics, the grids, the structural interplay of that architecture. So through her research and her choice of titles and this careful analysis of form, she aimed, and kind of in her own words, to simplify an image, to realize it in terms of its essential forms. 
but not to minimize or reduce or reproduce it. So I think that's the crucial distinction in her work, really. She sought to evoke these experiences and convey their essential form and the rhythm and the like of, of a space. Right. And here she's used found wood, right? So at this point, she stopped carving from single blocks and so on. She's got these pieces of wood and it's a form of assemblage, actually. It's not just sculpture. that There's a sort of collage aspect to this sculptural form. Yes, absolutely. Each of the pieces are made of different pieces of found wood, which is something that she started doing only a few years earlier. I see this really related to this idea of collage in three dimension. That's really also related to her printmaking practice, this idea of kind of collating these elements. She would carve some elements of them. On the surface of Ronin, there's these dense these kind of rhythmic punctuations, indentations, scratches and abrasions on the surface of the sculpture that also have this very tactile aspect that is very much part of that collage she was doing as well. Right, that's really interesting, isn't it? And and, and tell me more about her intentions with the sculpture because I'm really intrigued that she sort of in some ways rejected some of the kind of core aspects of sculpture that would have been taught at St Martin's on this very influential course but also she said she was interested in form space rhythm and really crucially light which seems to me to be fundamental to this piece too we're looking not just at a a solid form but the space around it yeah so when Kim Lim started at Central St Martin's she was studying under tutors like Elizabeth Frick and Anthony Caro and and very early on she had this really strong commitment to abstraction And it's a stance that really clashed with some of the tutors there, especially most notably Caro, who he hadn't yet embraced abstraction himself in his practice. So she was encouraged to transition to the Slade School of Fine Arts because she was trying to find a more liberal approach, a more open-minded artistic environment. Yet when she moved to the Slade, she was still very confronted with Eurocentric versions of art history. And that's why... She ended up traveling and she called her travels a real art education. And I think that's really essential to understanding the influences and her approach to form and her approach to kind of abstraction as well. I think in terms of Ronin, the title of the work is really important in trying to understand the meaning of the sculpture in a way. Ronin in Japanese means masterless samurai. It's a word that's often translated to kind of drifter or wanderer. I like this idea, this image of driftwood as well, which is kind of uh, relates to the sculpture. The etymology of the word relates also to the word of wave or unrestrained. And I think in the context of the work, Ronin really symbolized this wandering samurai serving as kind of a metaphor for the fluidity and the adaptability of of Kim Lim's practice as a whole and her use of form and this kind of three-dimensional collage that she was doing with these pieces of wood. And that's really interesting what she says about travelling being the main education because it is crucial that there she was at St Martin's making abstract work and one of the people who became most associated with the history of abstract sculpture in Britain and the world, Anthony Caro, was rejecting it. That is a really striking moment, it seems to me, in terms of that history of abstraction, which is often not told, actually, in terms of the way that we learn about it. Absolutely. I mean, Kim Lim has over 80 works in public collections in England. Interestingly, the only other artist of Asian heritage Heritage, who has more works in British public art collection than Lim is Anish Kapoor. Right. And I think it's quite telling that Lim's work has been so widely, some could say, almost forgotten since she passed. 
She was someone that was in all respect kind of a pioneer of abstraction and was recognized as such by being acquired by all these collections. And yet, so it's really important that we kind of try to revisit that history. And yeah, I think that was really the endeavor that curator Abby Shapiro was interested in and kind of it became kind of a crucial drive for her to rectify that oversight with this exhibition. Yeah, and it's important to stress that she did have success in her lifetime, isn't it? For instance, she was very famously the only female artist amongst many men in a Hayward Annual exhibition at one stage. And she was part of that five-woman curating team of the subsequent Hayward Annual with people like Tess Jarret and, and others. So she was a crucial figure within the art world of her time. And it was only after her death that there was this period of drifting, which happened in which she got less attention, right? Yes, absolutely. So her last solo exhibition in the UK was at Camden Art Centre in 1999, three years after her very premature death of breast cancer. And that was the last solo exhibition she had in the UK. So it's really sort of after her death that she became less and less part of that art historical canon of, of British modern art. And it's only kind of recently with exhibitions at the Whitechapel Gallery and at the Barbican Art Centre, these group exhibitions, that people have been excited to show her work again. And tell me, lastly, how the arguments of this show in a way shift our perceptions of her work. Are you returning to many of the kind of discussions about her work when she was alive? Or are you proposing new interpretations of her work and new ways of thinking about it? I think because her last show was almost 27 years ago, it was really important for this exhibition to be like a proper retrospective, being able to show the the temporal breadth of her practice. And I think the main thing that we really want people to take away from this exhibition is kind of this beautifully intricate link between sculpture and print that was so important to Lem's practice and kind of seeing her, her printmaking practice as almost a sculptural practice in a way because she was making these print plates, these copper plates, carving them almost as if they were sculptures. So I think that's something that's really central to this exhibition at the Hepworth And again, I think really trying to show the versatility of her practice. I mean, she worked from wood. Early in her career, she had these very raw forms of of wood that were used and then slowly they became more polished. She started using colors. And then towards the end of her life, she started carving stone and marble more extensively. So the temporal breadth of her practice and the kind of the different modes of working that she's been utilizing, that was really what we wanted to foreground in this exhibition. Marie Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Kim Lim, Space, Rhythm and Light is at the Hepworth in Wakefield from the 25th of November to the 2nd of June 2024. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Ben, Catherine and Marie Charlotte. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.